The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This hour of the Costa Report is brought to you by Dole Food Company, the world's leading producer and distributor of fresh fruits and vegetables. Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and thank you for joining me for another two hours of Straight Talk Radio. I want to take a moment to welcome new listeners who are joining us on KMET and also armed service personnel who are joining us on the Internet. Thank you for being with us. Our guest today is social scientist and best-selling author of five books, Mr. Daniel Pink. Pink is an expert at spotting changes in the workplace, changes which have an enormous impact on the kinds of skills we need to succeed. And one of those skills is selling our ideas. Today, Mr. Pink is going to help us see that we are all selling all of the time, even though some of us have jobs with sales titles and some of us don't. But before Pink joins us, as is my custom to do each week, let me tell you a little bit about his background. Pink earned his undergraduate degree from Northwestern University and law degree from Yale Law School. He worked for a short time as an aide for U.S. Secretary of Labor Robert Reich in the Clinton administration and from 1995 to 97 as chief speechwriter for Vice President Al Gore. Pink published his first book, Free Agent Nation, The Future of Working for Yourself, in 2002, which became an immediate bestseller. He soon followed this with The Adventures of Donnie Bunko, The Last Career Guide You'll Ever Need, and A Whole New Mind, Why Right-Brainers Will Rule the Future, and finally Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us. In each of these books, he reveals how the work environment has changed and what fast adapters are doing to prevail in that new environment. His latest book, To Sell as human, the surprising truth about moving others exposes some of the misconceptions we all have about selling, and we're going to hear more about that in just a moment. I want to add that Pink's work has been published in the New York Times, Harvard Business Review, and Wired Magazine, and he also provides analysis for CNN, CNBC, ABC, NPR, and other networks. It's my pleasure to, to uh, welcome to the program one of our most astute observers of human behavior and emerging trends, Mr. Daniel Pink. Thank you for joining us, Mr. Pink. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the program. Let's get started with your latest book, To Sell as Human. So what's human about it? Well, a number of things that are human about it. First is that it's something that human beings just do. It's part of the reason that our species have evolved. If I can persuade you to make an exchange that leaves both of us better off, that's a little thing that we call progress. And so I think what's interesting now is because of some changes in the economy, that the old-fashioned way of thinking about sales is something sort of sleazy and duplicitous and all about trickery uh, is falling away. And what some of the science is telling us is that the best way to do this, the most effective way to sell your idea, yourself, your product, your service, uh, is to be a little bit more like a human being. 
Well, now, one of the points you just made is that we all kind of have this idea that selling might be sleazy. Yeah. And, and you point out in your book that in earlier times, a salesperson had information that the customer didn't necessarily have or didn't have available to them. So that inequality made sales feel disingenuous. Is that right? That's, a, that's absolutely right. It's a hugely important point. Most of what we know about sales, and here let's talk about selling of products or services. Most of what we know about sales comes from a world of information asymmetry, where the seller always had more information than the buyer. When the seller has a huge information advantage, when the buyer doesn't have many choices, when the buyer doesn't have a way to talk back, the seller has a huge, huge advantage. Information asymmetry, this disparity in, in how much knowledge, how much information, how much data the relative parties have, information asymmetry is why we have the principle of buyer beware. When the seller knows a lot more, when you don't have many choices, when you don't have a way to talk back, you're on notice. You've got to avoid getting, avoid getting ripped off. But one of the things that you point out that we do have the information available to us, but boy, if you go on any search engine, for every one study you find that says one thing, you'll find another that says a complete opposite. Uh, even if we have all that information, how do we discern it to our advantage in a sales situation? Yeah, no, that's actually, that's actually a really important point, too. So we've gone, from, we've gone from this world of information asymmetry to one of information parity, information equality. But in that information equality, we have this you know, huge explosion of information. This is why one of the most important qualities in both selling and buying is something that I call clarity, which is the ability to take this wealth of information and say, this is what's important, this is what's not. Let's distill what's meaningful here from what's simply um, uh, noise and, and chaos and, and distraction. Now, this is easier and harder to do in certain kinds of transactions. Let's go back to a more classic sales transaction of buying a car. Um, you know, it used to be that when you walked into the Chevy dealer, the Chevy dealer had a lot more information than you ever could have about cars in general, about Chevys in particular. But now, when you go into a car dealer, you can know almost as much about cars as that car dealer has. You can go in and say, well, I know what every car dealer in the Santa Cruz area is charging for the Chevy Malibu. Uh, I have been to an online user group of Chevy Malibu owners who talk about their cars, and I know some of the idiosyncrasies of this particular make and model, and that might get me $200 off. I interviewed a car dealer in Washington, D.C., who said that when she first started selling cars in the 1980s, the factory invoice price of the car, the actual physical document, was locked in the safe. Even the salespeople weren't allowed to see it. Now, you know, you're Aunt Gladys in in um, Topeka can go into the car dealer with the factory invoice price of the car. So in some realms, the information parity is is absolutely simple and straightforward. In other realms, as you say, it's a little bit more challenging. Well, as an example, let's say that you're diagnosed with some particular disease, and now you've got to select the treatment that will be right for you along with the doctor that's right for you. Uh, It's very tough. I mean, I I run into a number of people who find themselves in that situation, and they need a medical degree really to sort through that information and to know which person to believe and how to make a, a wise choice. Yeah, but it's part, it's, it's that, to me, that's, a, that's an excellent point. It's changed the very role of doctors. I mean, what it's done in some ways is that it's, it's made the doctor part of, uh, given the doctor a, navigator, a navigator's role. And, you know, go, think about doing that 20 years ago. You go to the doctor, the doctor says you have some kind of terrible uh, illness, and you basically say, oh, okay, what do I do, doctor? 
now at least you have the capacity to look it up yourself, uh, to reach out to communities of people who might be suffering from that particular ailment. And, you know, people over time get better at this. I mean, this is one of the skills that we're ever so slowly developing in an age where we never really had to do that before. So how do you triangulate among, among sources? And so you're obviously going to be more trustworthy of something that comes from the Mayo Clinic website than something that comes from, you know, Al's knee replacements. Well, um, that's true. And I, I also think, to your point, that doctors have to be better salespeople. If they know that something is a particular, uh, is a, an effective treatment and is the right way to go, if they can't present their idea and they can't sell you on the idea and build a confidence and a trust, then it's likely that you will succumb to confusion and make the wrong choice. Precisely. And that's a, and, and what's so interesting about that, I, I just, I, uh, about two months ago, I, I met with some medical students, young men, you know, the men and women in their, in their 20s, and they're telling me that now in medical school, uh, this is part of what they're learning is how do you respond to a patient who comes in with a sheaf of paper saying, listen, doc, I know what's wrong with my kidney and I know what we should do. Sometimes they're right. Sometimes they're wrong. But it, 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 the doctor as kind of the oracle or the doctor as the person who simply dictates, uh, those days are, are ending. And that's probably over the long haul better for all of us. It's probably better to have the patient involved in some kind of way, even if the patient doesn't understand particular doesn't understand every single element of what they've of of of, of what they've looked up but it or certainly the changes the role of the doctor the doctor needs new types of skills in order to present their ideas that's exactly right and then and, and fortunately medical schools are not training those kinds of things the existing doctors you know came up were, were trained in a world where that was unthinkable that a, that a patient could come in you know reasonably well informed about some obscure ailment and now that's now that's now that's a fact of life. And what a doctor has to do is 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 not resist that, but she has to say, "Listen, here, let me see what you got. Okay, here's what you got. So this is from this source. You really can't trust this kind of source. Um, and help the patient make sense. You know, it's a sense-making role. It helps the patient make sense of that welfare of information. That's right. Um, and and that's what we all need help with now. We need help with making sense of that wealth of information. We have to take a short commercial break. And when we come back, we're going to find out if extroverts are better at selling and persuading than introverts. You're listening to the Costa Report. This Legal Minute is brought to you by Nolan, Hammerley, Etienne, and Haas. Experienced attorneys providing professional legal services to the Central Coast for 85 years. Hello, this is attorney Stephen Wagner with your Legal Minute. Have you ever said to yourself there ought to be a law for that? Well, often there is. In this segment, I will address the issue of social media and hiring practices, and specifically the potential employer's right to snoop around in social media networks to gather information about the potential employee. From the employer's perspective, social networking sites must seem like a treasure trove or petri dish, overflowing with valuable information. The hot-button legal issue that has arisen recently relates to the employer's request, or worse yet, demand for the candidate's password and or username. It is this conduct by the employer that has sparked outcry and controversy based on privacy rights, and this has led to legislation and the enactment of laws that now prohibit employers from making such demands or requests. Such is the case in California and several other states. 
it would now seem that the lid has been placed back on the Petri dish. However, it is important to note that employers still have a right to access all public information. That is, anything the potential or current employee chooses to share, publish, or make public. In other words, these laws do not protect job seekers from their own stupidity or indiscretions that they decide to gloat about by publishing their escapades on the World Wide Web. So it seems that discretion is still the better part of valor. This is Stephen Wagner, and that's your Legal Minute. Brought to you by Nolan Hammerley, Etienne & Haas. Selected in 2013 as one of the top law firms in the United States by Martindale Hubble. This is Sylvia Panetta inviting you to join us for the third in the Leon Panetta 2013 lecture series. The next forum will focus on gun control, the Second Amendment, are there limits? Secretary Panetta will moderate a discussion with Sarah Brady, chair of the Brady Center to Prevent Gun Violence, and Asa Hutchinson, former U.S. Representative and National Rifle Association Task Force Director. What is the balance between individual freedom and safety? Monday, May 27th, 7 p.m. KSCL. Hello, KSEO customers. This is Adam from the Ben Loman Market Meat Department, inviting you to our one-day meat bonanza sale, Friday, May 17th. We'll be offering these items in the bulk quantities. One-pound packages of cooked shrimp meat for $5.75 a pound. Five-pound packages of Miller hot dogs for $19.75 each. Pork tenderloins, $3.35 a pound. New York strips, $6.59 a pound. Boneless pork loins for $1.98 a pound. Baby back ribs for $2.98 a pound. Bone-in pork butts for $1.45 a pound. Victor brand bacon in the five-pound package for $3.95 a pound. Three-pound bags of tilapia fillets for $3.30 a pound. Pork spare ribs for $1.98 a pound. Filet mignon, $11.95 a pound. And ribeye roast for $6.89 a pound. Buy in bulk packages and get great savings. It's a perfect way to stock up the freezer or have a barbecue with family and friends. And remember, this is a one-day sale only. Friday, May 17th. Hope to see you at the Ben Loman Market. Hi, this is Neil from Off the Lip. Did you know there is a KSCO talk show host who practices her surfing while listening to the Off the Lip radio show in her bathtub? Did you know that the first lady of the surf city is an avid and competent surfer? Santa Cruz Mayor Hillary Bryant will be our honored guest on the next Off the Lip radio show Tuesday at 7 p.m. So tune in or call in to Off the Lip radio show or follow us on Facebook. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is author Mr. Daniel Pink. And before the break, you were making the point that the skills needed to persuade are necessary in every profession, even including doctors. So what are some of the myths we have about selling? For example, is it true extroverts are more successful at sales than introverts? Well, it's a great question. Here's what, here's what the data show. The data show that extroverts are more likely to go into sales that extroverts are more likely to get hired as sales professionals, that extroverts are more likely to get promoted once they're in those jobs. The only wrinkle here is that when scholars have looked at the link between extroversion and sales performance, that is, who sold stuff, how often did the cash register ring, uh, the correlation between extroversion and sales performance is essentially zero. So it's an intriguing question. Does this mean that introverts, you know, perhaps soft-spoken writers are better salespeople than, than, um, than the glad-handing types? And, and Adam Grant, who's a, a really wonderful young scholar at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School, recently looked into this in a paper that was published just a few weeks ago. And what he found was this. He, he did this study of a software company, 
he went to their sales force and he measured the introversion and extroversion levels of that sales force. And then the sales force went out into the field. And over the next three months, he chronicled how, how much they actually sold. And here's what he found out. Um, between introverts and extroverts, but extroverts sold more. Um, extroverts sold a little bit more. Extroverts were a little bit better at sales than introverts. But that was not the big story. The big story was this, that neither the introverts nor the extroverts did nearly as well as a third group. And that group is called the ambiverts, ambiverts, A-M-B-I-verts, ambiverts. Now, this is a term that a lot of people don't know, but it's actually been in the literature since the 1920s. And ambiverts describe people who are somewhat introverted and somewhat extroverted, people who are kind of in the middle. And what Adam Grant's research has found is this, that very strong introverts, they're not very good salespeople. They're, they're not assertive enough. They don't like to strike up conversations. They're not very good at it. But I think the big breakthrough is that strong extroverts they're not much better. And those are the people we think are the naturals, you know, the glad-handing, backslapping types. And they're not, much, they're not very good at it either. And as he unpacked it, the reasons for that seem to be they talk too much and listen too little, they're too pushy, and really it's the people in the middle who are somewhat introverted and somewhat extroverted who tend to be the most effective in sales. They know when to push, they know when to hold back. They know when to speak up, they know when to shut up. They're much more attuned. They're much, they have a, kind of a wider repertoire of skills. And it's really the ambiverts who are the sales stars, not the extroverts. That, that has, and this is just ringing so true to me, I have to well, say. What would you consider yourself, introvert, extrovert? I am, I consider myself a forced extrovert. Interesting. I, I I knew that being introverted. I, I'm a scientist, so I, I'm I just naturally I like to spend time with books and research. Right. Uh, but I knew I couldn't have the lifestyle I wanted. I, I wouldn't have the life I wanted. I wouldn't have the, either personally or professionally if I just uh, let that introversion take me over. And so I could see the life I wanted, and I said, "Well, I've got to develop social skills." So I pushed myself to the point now where I'm a public speaker. And no one who ever would hear me on a stage would characterize me as an introvert. I, I, I don't think they would. Yeah, that's very, very interesting. Um, you know, I, 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 it's so interesting because I think that's the story of a lot of people. Um, and, and, it, and it goes to, you know, my guess is that you're probably more of an ambivert than a pure introvert. That one of one of the one of the one of the techniques that some of these researchers use is is give people an instrument and and then locate them on a spectrum of one to seven. One meaning extremely introverted, seven meaning extremely extroverted. Mm -hmm. And so someone who is a one or a one point five or even a two might have some difficulty. But someone but someone who is a uh, a let's say you're a two point five. I mean I'm basically a two point five. Someone who's a two point five. You know what? We can learn how to be a three. Yes. And a three is pretty good. Yes. And a three is better than being that super strong extrovert. Mm -hmm. That's the great that's the great insight of all of this. But the interesting is thing is I think if you if you really are introverted and you ad you acquire uh, and you become proficient at extrovert types of characteristics and skills, uh, one of the things that you notice is this tremendous drain. You know, you, you go on stage, you speak publicly, or you get into a sales situation, and you're very good at what you're doing, but when you're done, instead of getting juice from that situation, which is how I characterize extroverts, they get juiced up by the public. And, and I, for me, it's a, boy, they're tapping my battery. 
in a big way. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a, that's 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 a, that's a but but you can still do it, and that's absolutely. That's the key. That's the key, and and I think that you know what we and, and the truth is is that as I mean as you know uh, you know introversion extroversion are very stable personality characteristics over time. Yes. If I were to test you know if someone would have tested you when you were ten years old, you probably would have been more introverted than extroverted, as I would have been. Um, and so you can't take someone. Let's go back to that one to seven spectrum. Someone who you know like maybe you or I who who is a two or two and a half. You can't turn us into a six. That's not who we are. All right? But you know what you can but but you know what we can do is that we can learn a little bit and move a little to the center. We can become a three and a three is a three is very good. And and I think that for your you know, your listeners, um, your story is very, very instructive because what what you can do, what I have done what you have done, what I have done is look at extroverts and say, you know, some of the things that they do are actually quite wonderful and yes. really important. So uh, yes. for me the, the for me the thing was um I always found it strange, like extroverts would be sitting on a train or a bus or an airplane and strike up a conversation with the person sitting next to them, <laughs> uninvited. Like, what are you doing? And, and, and I was, but you know what? That's actually worth doing every once in a while, pushing yourself out of the comfort zone to do something like that. You might learn something. Right. And right. by the same token, you know, uh, let's go to the other side of the spectrum. Extroverts can learn from, from introverts and, um, to move a little bit more toward the center of, uh, and be a little bit more ambiverted. For instance, if you look at, I'm, I'm guessing for you, but if you look at the way that I would go into a party or people like us might go into a party or a social gathering, you know, extroverts just go, boom, walk through the door and plunge right in. Yes. Whereas you and I and our, our ilk might kind of circle the periphery a little bit, do a walkthrough, see what's going on, inspect from the outside, and then make our move. And yes, you know surveillance. What? We do surveillance first. Surveillance is exactly <laughs> what it is. And you know what? Extroverts could actually benefit from surveillance every once in a while. Yes, they could before they open their mouth. That would be exactly. good. <laughs> now, we hear a lot about the importance of empathizing with the person that you're trying to convince, but you kind of have a different take on this. You point out that empathizing on how somebody feels isn't nearly as important as thinking about what's in their interest. Yeah, well, this is some really, really interesting research on the quality of attunement, which is perspective taking. One of the important foundational skills of you know, selling persuasion influence is being able to get out of your own head into someone else's head and sort of see things from their perspective. And what the research shows pretty clearly is this. Um, it's, it's interesting studies of negotiations. And what they found is that focusing on the other side's emotions and feelings is better than going in, not focusing on anything. But focusing on the other side's thoughts and interests is actually more effective than focusing on only their uh, feelings and emotions. And the, the, the key insight there is that this idea of a two-minute perspective taking is not a kind of, sort of, not only about emotional intelligence, it's actually a kind of cognitive analytic skill. Yes. Looking at someone else's point of view and saying, okay, what's in it for them? What are their interests? What are they thinking right here? That's right. Not just how they feel, but how are they viewing the situation? And I think that exactly. was very critical in, uh, in your book. We have to take another break. When we come back, we're going to find out why mimicking a customer's gestures works so well. You're listening to The Costa Report. I'm here today with Scott Caraccioli of Caraccioli Sellers. 
Now, there's a number of ways you can taste wines at the tasting room. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, we currently have nine different wines on our tasting menu, and we really want it to be an experience where you get to taste the wine that you want to taste. So if you want to taste Pinot, you can really focus your flight around that. If you wanted to focus on the bubbles, we have three different sparklings that will allow you to build your flight that way. Or if you came in and you just wanted to taste one wine, we would uh, have it set up for you to be able to do that as well. Now, what's a flight? A flight is basically a combination of small tastes of different wines. If you wanted to taste all of our different Chardonnays, you could taste the 2007 Chardonnay, the 2008, and the 2009, and we would line you up with an individual taste of each of them. Thank you for being with us again, Scott. Thank you, Rebecca. Ready for a break from the typical talk radio menu of topics that make you angry and stressed? Well, get ready. Sean Conrad is in town, blowing through on a nationwide book tour for his wildly fun and fascinating book, Kicking Out the Jams, The Purple Haze of My Crazy Days in Radio. Sean is a legendary radio and television advertising sales and production master whom I have admired for many years, but I had no idea what a colorful background he had in the media industry. Hear about his exciting life of psychedelia, flaxen, waxen, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. As he said, from hanging out with rock stars to being homeless and back again. From scribbling autographs to signing divorce papers. Can there possibly be a happy ending? Find out on the next KSCO special. Talk to the ever-adventurous, never-boring Sean Conrad this Saturday, 10 a.m. to 12 noon, right here on It's About Time. We all had some fun radio, AM 1080 KSCO. We'd love to see you and your family have some good old-fashioned fun at our annual Day on the Farm at the Agricultural History Project Center and Museum at the Santa Cruz County Fairgrounds. Join us Saturday, May 18th to take an old-fashioned hayride with Clydesdale horses, watch sheep shearing, play hoop games, churn butter, grind corn, and a whole lot more. And if you're lucky, you might be able to drive the horses for a bit with some help from our experienced Teamsters. We'll have food to purchase provided by the Heritage Foundation, and you can amble on over and see the Pajaro Valley Chamber Car Show also on the fairgrounds at the same time. That's Saturday, May 18th at Day on the Farm at the Agricultural History Project located at the Santa Cruz County Fairgrounds outside Watsonville. The times are 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. with hay rides, 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. and driving the horses between 2 p.m. and 4 p.m. You, there's only one, and we exist because of you. To provide the care you need when you need it, Physicians Medical Group has over 300 providers just in Santa Cruz County. That's over 300 teammates focused on the one, the only, you. With over 42 specialties and 100 locations, you'll find the right provider for you. Find your teammate, your Physicians Medical Group care provider, by visiting our website, pmgscc.com. 
Tune in to the Sentinel Radio Program Saturday morning at 8 a.m. right here on AM 1080 KSCO. Brought to you by First Church of Christ Scientist Monterey. Come into our Christian Science Community Reading Room and Bookstore and find comfort from the challenges you're facing. We have the resources that will connect you with your God-given substance. Find help now. Our address is 780 Abrego Street in Monterey. Reach out for this help today. Come in and visit or call 831-372-5076. 372 Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is best-selling author Daniel Pink. And before the break, we were discussing the fact that empathizing with how a person feels is not nearly as effective as looking at the situation from their perspective. And understanding their reasoning is so critical to changing behavior. So one of the techniques you describe is imitating the gestures of the person you're selling to. And and this reminded me a lot of anthropologist Helen Fisher's book, Anatomy of Love, where she studied the mating rituals of humans. And, and she noted that in the, this third stage, they begin to mirror each other's gestures. For example, if the female sits with her hands on the table, the male who is courting her favor, he, he does the same thing. He puts his hands on the table. And if she cocks her head to the right, he does the same thing as well. And and I was realizing that that's a way of physically expressing empathy. Uh, yeah, no, that's a really, really great point between, uh, really, really good comparison between this stuff and the, and the Fisher work. And it shows, I think, that this idea of mimicry, which it, it, it sounds a little duplicitous, it sounds like you're trying to fake somebody out, is part of what human beings do, uh, that we, we mimic and mirror each other's a posture, our facial expression, the, as you say, the tilt of our head, the way we hold our hands. And we do it, and in Fisher's example, we do it unconsciously. We're not consciously saying, she opened her hand, therefore I'm going to open my hand in this kind of algorithmic, reasoned way. It's part of how we take another's perspective, that, that we somehow, sometimes we understand someone's position literally by sort of standing in their position. And, and it's really quite a fascinating idea. And when you, if you go out into, say, a big uh, shopping mall or a busy downtown area and you see people who, who like each other, who are connecting with each other, talking to each other, you'll see this, what, what seems to be this kind of choreographed mirrored dance, which is really quite remarkable. So, um, and well, we can use this to our advantage and we can, we, can, we can draw on this, we can understand people better by being more conscious of that. And some very, very interesting studies that have shown that even small instructions, say before a negotiation session, small instructions to be conscious of how, what, how the other person is standing or sitting, how they're using their hands, what their posture is like, and then subtly mimicking that back, amazingly turns out to be quite effective in negotiation sessions. And I think the other thing about that that's so interesting is that when people mimic subtly in a lot of this research, the people who are being mimicked when they're questioned later have no idea at all. They have no idea at all because it's such a natural part of how human beings connect with each other. That's absolutely true. Uh, in fact, I did a little experiment with my kids, and my kids are always my animal experiments. Um, <laughs> you know, when they grow up with a social scientist, they say, "Mom, we're ruined. We're ruined yeah, by all course, of your monkey experiments." But do you get the neighbors, do you get the neighbors to be the control group? I do. I do. Yeah. I, I I use everybody I know as control groups. So so one of the things I did was, you know, I was mimicking their behavior. They were trying to convince me to extend their, uh, I think, their curfew or raise their allowance or some such. And and, uh, and I was mimicking their behavior, and they were thinking, this is great. This is going well. We, we got mom's buy-in. And then in the middle of it, I stopped mimicking. 
and I and I went off the reservation and and started uh, you know taking a behavior on that was different and you could see the anxiety go up interesting uh, it's a very interesting thing that if you break that off suddenly and yeah. the mimicking stops there's a there's almost a an anxiety created in the moment i i don't i don't know if that's a sign that's certainly not a scientific study but um that's, that's actually interesting but it makes some sense because what what you're doing is in some level there is you're violating certain kinds of I don't even want to call them norms. I'm, I'm you're violating them. comfort. Biological. I mean, I think they're suddenly you're, you're comfortable. Violent. You're both mimicking yeah. each other. You're 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 put into a state of ease, and then somebody brings something up, and you pull back. You withdraw, and there's a right. moment at which they've lost you. And uh, and I think that 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 probably plays into sales a lot. A very skilled person probably knows when to stop the mimicking and then return. Interesting. That's actually that's that's interesting. I don't. I'd have to. Yeah, that's very interesting. But I think that the disruptive part of it is is you're violating sort of the natural way of doing things. It would be like if you and I were having a face to face conversation, and then at a certain moment, I continued the conversation with you, but I turned my back to you, so you had to look at the back of my head. Yeah. I mean, that would be kind of weird, right? You're violating the the natural way these things are being done. And I, and I think that when we're trying to persuade people and we're trying to influence people, simply being conscious of that other channel of information, the channel of information that isn't, in this case, purely cognitive, but is reflected in their gestures. Which and, and, it, and that gesture may be a signal to someone that they've gone too far in the negotiations. You know, you may, yeah. you may choose to pull back from that mimicry to signal to someone, okay, that's too far. We, I was with you to that point, but yeah. maybe not so much now. Now, you also believe that people who show positive emotions and attitudes have a much better uh, track record of uh, persuading people than those who maintain a poker face and try to keep everyone guessing. And that's also somewhat different from what we've been told. Yeah, this is interesting. This is the research. There are two great scholars on this. One is, uh, is Shirley Koppelman at the University of Michigan who found in negotiation sessions that um, uh, having a positive affect actually is plays a pretty significant role in getting people on your side. She did this interesting experiment where uh, there was a people were, were were buying something and the seller came in with changed circumstances. So let's say you and I we think we have a deal. You come to me a week later and I say, "Listen, Rebecca, the deal has changed. It's going to cost you X amount more." And um, and I got someone else who wants to buy it right now. So take it or leave it. And, and how the aspect that I used in presenting that, I could either do it very neutrally, I could do it in a more jerk-like way, or I could do it with a very positive affect. And even though the terms were exactly the same, yeah. the people with the more positive affect got more of, uh, got, got greater assent, um, which I think is quite, I think that's quite interesting in itself. Also, there's also the work of Barbara Fredrickson at the University of North Carolina, who has shown that, um, People tend to flourish when they have a certain ratio of positive to negative emotions. So she found that when your po- your positive to negative the ratio of positive to negative emotions should exceed three to one. That there should be three positive emotions: uh, 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 awe, curiosity, gratitude for every negative emotion, um, anger, uh, resentment, envy, those sorts of things. And in even a two to one ratio of positive negative sentiment, which is Meaning that you know two out of three of your emotions are positive. That seems pretty good. Um, isn't enough. It's really there's a tipping point right at about three. I think when you get to three, you're pretty much uh, you know dependent on pharmaceuticals. I don't know how you get three to one ra- uh, th- uh, three to one ratio. Otherwise, uh, uh, that's that's a tough call. 
Well, you know what's interesting about this? What's so interesting about this is that you would think, okay, so it's going to top out at a certain point. So let's just let's just say, okay, three is good. But you know what? You know, you can do five. This, the ceiling where it starts to go awry is incredibly high. It's eleven to one. Now, yeah. if you have eleven to one positive to negative emotions, you're in la la land. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, so, you know, one of my favorite movies is Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. I have to bring that up because that is the quintessential movie about old-style selling. And uh, for listeners who aren't familiar with the film, it's about a group of salesmen, and they're played by Al Pacino and Jack Lemmon and Kevin Spacey, and they're all working in a small office. And uh, then corporate sends Alec Baldwin in to motivate them to get more sales. And I cringe every time I see Jack Lemmon sit down with that couple mm. Uh, he's so out of step with them, uh, not listening, and he's got to make the sale. He's got to get the commission. Um, you say that questions are far more important than talking. And I, I really, when I watch that film over and over again, he's just not asking any questions. He's just moving in for the close. Interesting. Yeah, though there are a lot of great lessons there. I mean, Alec Baldwin in that famous scene, you know, it talks about the ABCs, you know, A always, B, B, C closing, always be closing, yeah. always be closing, this very predator approach. And in my view, looking at the social science, is that the new ABCs are attunement, which we've talked about, buoyancy, which is staying afloat in the ocean of rejection, and clarity, which we talked a little bit about, you know, dealing with this massive information and making sense of it. Um, but questions are, are really, really powerful. And, and there's some great research on this out of Ohio State University, uh, showing um, the certain power the questions have in convincing others. Gist of it is this. The conceptual gist of it is that questions by their very nature elicit an active response. So if I ask you a question, you have to chew over it a little bit. Yes. And when you chew over it, you often come up with your own reasons for believing something. And when people have their own reasons for agreeing with you, they believe them more deeply and adhere to them more strongly. Absolutely. I think questions help to fortify your position. And if your position is an objection, that's all the better because you're communicating that. Now we have to take our last break. Uh, stay right where you are. We'll be back with more from Mr. Daniel Pink. You're listening to the Costa Report. Just about everyone knows that fruits and vegetables are good for our health, but not everyone knows how to build a healthier plate. Hi, I'm Amy Tobin, a cookbook author and culinary expert. For each meal, nutrition experts recommend filling half of your plate with fruits and veggies. Whether it's fresh berries with your breakfast cereal, a wrap filled with your favorite roasted vegetables for lunch, or a medley of crunchy veggies for a pre-dinner nibble, Dole provides the freshest and highest quality produce available. When you load up on all the nutritional good stuff, you give your meal an instant boost of color, flavor, and texture, plus vitamins and minerals and fiber, everything your body needs to succeed. For nutritional inspiration and to learn more about Dole's fresh, whole, and cut vegetables and a full line of berries, visit Dole.com. With Dole as your partner in health, the possibilities are endless. Visit Dole.com. What does your website do for you? Does it simplify doing business and automate routine tasks? Does it connect with your target audience and bring new business? If you can't answer yes, then you need to contact Sunstar Media. Located on the Monterey Peninsula for over 17 years, Sunstar Media has developed websites for startups, brick-and-mortar stores, to corporations on the stock market. What makes Sunstar different is the customization that goes into every site, tailored to each client's unique needs and vision. 
Sunstar's experienced pros keep you ahead of the game with their custom-fit development process for website applications that cater to your company's specific needs. Learn more at sunstarmedia.com. Mention you heard this ad on the Rebecca Costa Show and get a free web analysis report on your current site or a free web consultation for your next project. Let's discuss how Sunstar can help you. Reach out to us at sunstarmedia.com. I'm uh, a T. We're going to do 25 now. 50 now. 75. We're going to do 300. 325. 353. 75. We're going to do 400. 425. 450. Imagine finding an old painting or chair or fishing lure while rummaging through the attic. Is it junk or is it hidden treasure? Hello, I'm Rob Slowinski of Slowinski Auctions and Appraisers in Scotts Valley. Before you throw that item out, you better make certain it's not hidden treasure. And the way to do that is to join me at 2 p.m. Saturday afternoon here at KSEO for Hidden Treasures Radio Show. Put that item on the table in front of you and call the show. We'll figure out what that item is, where it came from, what it's worth, give or take. So don't throw that item out. Instead, join me, Rob Slowinski of Slowinski Auction Company, Saturday afternoon at 2 p.m. for Hidden Treasures Radio Show. Is it junk? Or is it hidden treasure? If you own property, you know how much hard work goes into keeping up with it. Kubota Compact Tractors can help you power through all kinds of spring chores. If you're thinking, I'd love to own a Kubota, but can I afford a Kubota? Think CNN Tractors in Watsonville. At CNN, Kubota quality pays for a lot less than you might think. For example, the feature-loaded L3200F starts at only $12,995 with a 31.9-horsepower Kubota diesel engine. Nothing wimpy under the hood. The L3200F also features a Category 1 three-point hitch, smooth shuttle transmission, and power steering. All standard and all with the durability and reliability that a Kubota is known for. Kubota's L3200F. Think about it. With so much power, versatility, and quality, you can't afford not to take a look. Check out Kubota at CNN Tractors in Watsonville. Give us your tough jobs. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is author of To Sell is Human, Mr. Daniel Pink. If you'd like to comment on today's program, send your emails to RebeccaCosta.com, and you can also contact me on Facebook and Twitter. And if you haven't registered yet, be sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel. One of my favorite observations in your book, Mr. Pink, uh, is the recommendation to tap into people's desire to do good. So tell us why that's important in selling. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a very, really exciting line of research that's come out from a lot of young scholars, including Adam Grant, whom I mentioned earlier, but, but several others, who have shown that at some level we're leaving appeals to purpose on the table. Uh, that we tend to think that it's only that the people, the only thing that people think of is what's in it for them. And that's, and, that's, and that's actually a very important component of it all, but appealing to a higher purpose is really, really powerful, or reminding people why they're doing something in the first place is extremely powerful. Um, one of my favorite examples of this was this great study of Israeli radiologists, and what they did is for, for two groups of radiologists. For one group, they just read the scans on the computer as they ordinarily would. For the other group, 
Um, they read the scans, but the scans were accompanied by a photograph of the patient. So they were looking at somebody's ulna, but they would look at, they would say, oh, here's Fred. This is Fred's ulna. Okay, so very simple intervention there. And it turned out that radiologists who saw both the scan and the patient's photograph spent uh, significantly more time looking at the scan and created far more meticulous reports. The other thing that's very interesting about that is that they did a follow-up where they presented this, you know, radiologists are reading scans, you know, dozens and dozens of scans every day. Mm -hmm. They took those same scans, let's say Fred's ulna, they took those same scans and presented it to the same radiologist several months later. Okay, they didn't know, the radiologists didn't know this. And when the radiologists read the scans without the photograph, again, they, don't, they didn't know they were seeing this again, um, they ended up being less meticulous, but also they ended up not finding 80% of what are called the incidental findings, which is I go to get my hand, I think I broke my finger, I go to get an x-ray, and they say your finger's fine, but there's a little cyst there down near your wrist that we need to look at. And so this idea of making it personal, of actually putting a face on it, actually improves people's performance. So the same radiologist basically was subject to the same reading, uh, but one time they had a photograph, and then later they didn't have a photograph. And clearly they uh, missed some things when they didn't have a photograph and no opportunity to empathize. It was remarkable what they, it's remarkable how much they missed. Mm -hmm. I mean, their findings, it was really the incidental findings, which is, you know, stuff that, you, that, stuff that, you, that you're not looking for that ends up, and that's how a lot of people's lives are saved, actually. They, mm -hmm. go in for a, they go in for a scan for X, and they say, wait a second, we see something else there. There was a drop of 80, 80%. That's just remarkable. So uh, the rule, the, the new discovery here is that we all want our photographs to go with every x-ray. <laughs> uh, you know what? It, I have to say it's not, it, I think as a, as a, as a practice in, in hospitals and in doctor's offices, it's not a bad practice to, to adopt. And the great part about it is that it doesn't really cost any extra money. Everything is digital. Mm -hmm. You can pop up, you know, you can pop up my shining face when I go into get my, you know, ankle scanned after falling down running. Yes, yes, uh, that's true. Now, you live and you've been working in Washington, D.C., so let me ask you this. Okay. Po politicians have the ultimate selling job because yeah. uh, they have to sell concepts. And not only do they have to convince the country, they have to convince people to cross party lines in order to get anything done. But, but yeah. gridlock... That's a sign that the process of selling is broken down. And, and, and is that because they don't follow your rule to give up power? Or is, is, is that something else? How do you diagnose that? You know, I have a slightly different diagnosis of that. And it's actually, I, I, I wish it were simply that they weren't following some of these well-established principles of social science on persuading and reaching common ground. I think the problem, Rebecca, unfortunately, is far deeper than that. Let me give you, uh, let me see if I can, uh, so, so let's say that I was selling a car. And you were in the market to buy a car, a used car. So, I, and, I, and the lowest price I would charge, two thousand, and you're not going to pay more than thirteen hundred. We are simply not going to do a deal. Yes, that's the facts, right? We're too far apart. There's no common ground. Mm -hmm. And I think what's happened in the Congress and the Democrats have moved very far to the left. The Republicans. Oops, we're we're missing a connection here, uh, oh. Mr. Pink. Can you hear me? 
Uh, yeah, I can hear you fine. I'm you not can just... hear me fine. I'm not really sure what's going on. I'm going to have our engineers are taking a look at it right now. Okay, so so going back to your example, so you're you're far apart on a price of a car. So so yeah so if so if, if I'm if I'm not going to if I'm not going to accept less than two thousand and you're not going to pay more than thirteen hundred, we are simply not going to do a deal. Yes, that's the facts. Yes. And and I think that's what's happened in Congress is that that one side has moved, the, the Democrats have moved far to the left, the Republicans have moved far to the right, and there's not that overlap. There used to be a time in this country when there were some Democrats who were more conservative than some Republicans, where there were some Republicans who were more liberal than some Democrats, and that actually created a certain amount of common ground. Now, um, every side is every side is protecting its extreme flank. And so that's moving people more and more and more to the extremes, which is preventing us from having any kind of common ground. But there have to be a few people amongst the politicians in Washington, D.C., who are good persuaders, who, who might follow the rules that you have uh, yeah. outlined in your book and would persuade uh, someone to, you know, perhaps consider their ideas. We don't even seem to have that. I mean, if it's one thing if the dialogue's completely broken down, but it's another thing to have leaders who aren't good persuaders. Yeah, I mean, the other thing, that's a that's a good point. And the other thing is, you know, you, you have to let's go let's go back to something we talked about earlier. Let's we're trying to understand somebody where they're coming from. Let's focus on their interests. Okay, forget about their emotions. Let's think about their interests here. Mm-hmm. And at some level, in cer- for certain politicians, it's actually not in their interest to do this. It's not in their interest to reach across the aisle. It's not in their interest if if you have a far right Republican to say, "Oh, let me try to do something uh, with uh, Bernie Sanders of of Vermont," because they'll get clobbered by their own party and they'll get clobbered by um, they'll, they'll get clobbered by people who might run against them in the primary. The same thing is true on the on the other side. Okay, but I'm going to go back to what you said earlier. Yeah. You know, you recommended that we always tap into people's desire to do good. How about how about tapping into the desire to represent and do what's right for the greater good? I'm with you. I'm with you. I think that actually holds. I, I think that holds some potential. I think that the missing piece there is that their constituents, you and I, the voters, the citizens, aren't demanding that. And at some level, we're complicit in all of this, and that we are not. It's, we look at this and say it's a spectacle. These guys are morons. Um, but we don't stand up and say this must end. We're going to vote you out of office if you don't come if you don't come around. And I think that you know we are as much as we love complaining about politics. This is a republic. We put these guys and gals in office, and so at some level we're complicit if things go wrong. Well said. <laughs> so that's our program for today. Uh, you know I could talk to you for another hour, but uh, we're going to have to let you go. Uh, before we say goodbye, I do want to thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you, Mr. Pink. It was a total pleasure, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. If your station is leaving us after the first hour and you'd like to comment on today's program, send your emails to RebeccaCosta.com and you can also contact me on Facebook and Twitter. And if you haven't registered yet, be sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel because coming up here very shortly, you're going to be able to get a jump on my new book. They're planning a sneak peek for YouTube channel subscribers and also our Facebook friends. So don't wait. Grab your phone and subscribe to the Rebecca Costa YouTube channel and go ahead and like us on Facebook 
and you'll be able to get that sneak peek. My guest next week is three-time presidential candidate and former diplomat in the Reagan administration, the always controversial Alan Keyes. He'll be here to explain why our Constitution may be under attack in new ways that we just don't quite yet understand. Don't miss Alan Keyes next week, right here on your favorite weekly news magazine, the only program you can trust to put principles ahead of politics. Now stay tuned for the second hour of the Costa Report when we take your calls and find out what's on your mind. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. If you listen to talk shows in the news today, you might come away with the impression that the root of all our problems are politics or economics. The right blames the left, the left blames the right, and everyone blames the Chinese. But take a hard look at where the blame game has gotten us. That's why I'm asking you to pick up a copy of The Watchman's Rattle. It's available in paperback and as an ebook too. And if you don't have time to read, there's an audio version so you can listen in your car or even on the beach. The book explains why complexity produces gridlock and what we have to do to start moving forward again. So pick up a copy of The Watchman's Rattle at a bookstore near you or online retailer. Do it today. Restaurant and Lounge is open now at the Watsonville Airport. That's right. There's a brand new watering hole ready to serve you seven days a week for lunch and dinner located right at the Watsonville Airport. Easy to reach and what a wonderful destination it is. Prime rib special every Wednesday night. What a bargain at only $14. Steak, seafood, pasta dishes, a terrific burger, all kinds of wonderful things, plus great appetizers, specialty burgers, there's even a kids' menu and small plates after 5 p.m. Happy hour Monday through Friday, 3 to 6. So visit Props at the airport. You just take the airport boulevard exit off of Highway 1. When you get to Aviation Way, hang a left and you'll find 100 Aviation Way. It's the airport building and in it is Props Restaurant. Go eat 
Drink and enjoy. Props Restaurant and Lounge is open now at the Watsonville Airport. Tell them Charlie sent you.